you would please open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be picking up with verse 13 and reading through verse 17. Hear God's word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught to us, by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. We thank you that it points us so wonderfully, so marvelously, so clearly back to the grace and the love that you have given to us. Might we be those who know the deep and profound and the everlasting love of Christ. And might we follow you today as those who love you, not having loved you first but having loved you in response to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going these last few weeks through the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we've seen wonderful teaching again and again from the Apostle Paul as it relates to the Christian life. And one of the questions I was thinking as I opened up this section of chapter 2, verse 13, is... What exactly has Paul been trying to argue? What has he been trying to put forward? What's his main point that he's been hammering home again and again, albeit in a few different ways? And I think what he's doing is he is constantly putting forward a distinction. He is showing us what we have as believers in Christ and what unbelievers do not receive and what they do receive from the Lord. He's been creating this distinction all the way from the very beginning. In chapter 1, he showed us that unbelievers are awaiting a great and terrible judgment from God. But we are awaiting great glory and great blessing and great happiness in Christ who comes on that day. And then in chapter 2, we see another distinction being made all about the day of the Lord. We see that unbelievers are unprepared for that day entirely. Sadly, Paul reminds us that on that day, many will be deluded. Many will be led astray. Many will fall short. And many will love unrighteousness. They will cling to their sins until the very bitter end. Meanwhile, we are prepared for that day. We know what is coming. We are working with knowledge and with truth. And what is it that makes this big difference between us? Why is it that there's such a chasm between the believer and the unbeliever? Maybe I could put it in more poignant words. 
Why in the world has God shown so much grace and mercy to us, but to others he has given them exactly what they deserve? Why is that? We know the difference is not in our works, because after all, we're sinners too, and we know our sin. It's not in our skill or abilities, because we know how often we fall short, just like unbelievers and those of the world. We know that it's not due to any inherent difference in us. It's not because we're more pure. It's not that we're more lovely or more commendable before God, or we're more deserving of the grace of God or anything like that. No, all of that, hopefully and thankfully, has been taken away from us. No, we know it is one thing alone. The difference is Jesus Christ. We know the love of Christ. We have had the love of Christ poured into us. We are recipients of the perfect love of Christ. And as we see in this text, it's a love that is eternal, that is ongoing. It is a love that chooses and calls and redeems and purifies us and cleanses us. It's a love that also upholds us and carries us forward each and every day. This is the difference. It's Christ and his great love for us. And God wants his children to be assured of this truth. He wants us to know that we are in his son and that his son is for us. That we are his always. I just have two points for us tonight. Two points ...about the love of God. First, I want us to see the framework of God's love. And here, what I mean by the framework is... ...the theological contours of the love of God. The love of God is theologically rich. And secondly, we want to see the day-to-day of God's love. That is, God's love is here every moment. It is for us and with us all of the time. Every single day. First point... The framework of God's love. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And here, that we is in distinction to the unbelievers. They are holding on to their sins according to verse 12. Not believing the truth. But we, on the other hand, we have every reason to be thankful, Paul says. We have every reason to be humbled, every reason to be full of praise and abounding in thanksgiving. And notice that he presents this as an ongoing reality. We ought always to give thanks. In other words, thankfulness is always appropriate. As Pastor Greco reminded us just this morning, thankfulness is always in season. It's always right and fitting to be thankful It's especially right to be thankful even in trying circumstances. Because there's going to be so many times in the Christian life where if we're honest with ourselves, we don't know what to do. We're in great difficulties and we might think to ourselves, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to act. I don't know where to go. And then we can stop and be thankful for a moment. And we can say, I do know this. I do know that the Lord is with me. I do know that he loves me. So why be thankful? Well, he goes on to show us we should be thankful always because we are the recipients of God's perfect love. In fact, I think he highlights that in the next part of verse 13. He says, brothers beloved of 
the Lord or beloved by the Lord. And that's the description that Paul gives of us. We're the beloved ones of God. That's a great Old Testament word. The beloved one of God was Israel, God's own son, his own people, the ones that he has loved. And Paul is reminding you that that is your boast, that the love of God is your very name. In other words, it's your very definition. It is your identity. It is who we are. We are those that have been shown and have received great love from God. And what kind of love is this? Well, it's not a vague love. It's not sort of a up-in-the-clouds, feel-good kind of love. It is a love that is revealed in word and in deed. As I hinted at earlier, it's a love that is expressed in rich doctrines given to us for our edification and for uh, our good. And one of the things Paul does here to show us the love of God is he simply goes back to the basics. He goes right back and he shines a light onto our salvation in Christ. He, he shows every part of that salvation, highlighting all of its principal parts, highlighting all of its core components. And I think he does this because it helps us to understand our salvation. Doesn't that help you understand something? To understand something when you break it down piece by piece and you understand it from a mechanical perspective. You know, I'm not much of an artist. In fact, that might have been an, an overstatement. I'm not an artist at all. Uh, sometimes I look at people who can paint and who can draw and they, they, they do wonderful canvases and I, I'm so astounded by that. And I'm floored by it. I don't even know how you begin. I don't know where you begin to put color onto a canvas. But at the same time, I've also had the privilege or uh, times of my life where I've watched some of those Bob Ross painting videos. Have you ever seen those? You know the crazy guy, he's got the crazy hair. Uh, it's not a mistake, that's just a tree. We'll fix that right away kind of guy. If you don't know, he's somebody that teaches painting. And you watch those videos, and it, it's so simple that even I can, I can follow it. And it starts so simply, just a couple of lines here, a little bit of color, and we'll spread this out. If I make mistakes, it's okay. But in those videos, you see how it works because you started part by part. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's highlighting all of the parts of the love of God so that we get it. So it's real and understood by us. Well, what are those parts? Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would seem to me that in those two verses, you have five discernible parts of this salvation of God, as I can see it in this text. There is election, there is sanctification, there's justification or belief in the truth, there's calling, and there's, there's a hope of eternal glory, what is awaiting us. Just two short verses but isn't it just jam-packed with rich truth that shows us the love of God? Now, I don't want you to get worried. I'm not going to give a systematic theology going over every single one of these parts, uh, justification and sanctification and defining each one and going on and on, because frankly, that's not what Paul does here. 
Paul doesn't go into great detail about what each one of these is. He does that in other places of scripture. But here, he just wants you to see them all put together. He's bringing all of the parts together so that we see their unity and their common purpose. And so I want to ask, what are some lessons that we get seeing all of these five parts of our salvation brought together? What do we see in this beautiful canvas of the love of God? First, I want you to notice that salvation's source is God himself. He shows us here and reminds us that the love of God is something that reaches far back into the channels of time. Before the foundation of the world, before time itself, God has loved you. He has eternally set his love onto his elect, to those that he has chosen. That's what Paul says here. God chose you as first fruits. In other words, he's saying, you, the elect, the believers in the church, you are the planned harvest of God. Here, God is a wise farmer, and he's planning for his produce. He is preparing his crop, and he is expectantly waiting for the fulfillment of that crop. And this election, what does it do to us? Practically speaking, what does it, what does it do to us? Well, one of the things that it does is it strips us of pride. I don't know if you've ever considered that before. How can we be prideful if we know that God has loved us before I've even spoken a word? How can we be prideful when we think that when we were once in rebellion against God, God even at that time was seeking us? That the plan of redemption was at work bringing it to fruition even in our life. That even before I came to faith and you came to faith, that salvation was known and planned and sure in God. I don't know about you, but that strips away my pride, unlike anything else. To know that my salvation did not come from in me. It came from God, far back, far beyond time itself. A second lesson that we learn is we see that salvation changes our present lives. Look at what Paul says. He says, it is through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so our election does not achieve salvation, but it does ensure sanctification and justification. That is to say, because God has chosen us, therefore in real time, he must convert us. Therefore, in real time, he must bring the truth to us and enlighten us. He must come and radically change our course to bring a 180 of repentance into our life. Revealing truth, demolishing lies that we believe, casting away the idols of our heart. This is what God does in real time. He purifies us. He will not leave us in our sins. He will cleanse us. And make us holy. And I want to simply say that we need to know that these two realities, faith in the gospel and justification and and sanctification, are absolutely necessary. There is no salvation apart from faith in the gospel. It cannot happen. And there is no salvation apart from real inward change, real sanctification in our life. And these are realities 
brothers and sisters, we can never discount. We can never mess with those doctrines. You see, faith can never be replaced. So often in our culture and in our sort of multicultural world, we think that faith can be replaced with mere sincerity. As long as you're sincere, as long as you're earnest in whatever you believe. But no, you can very sincerely and very earnestly find yourself in hell. We believe the truth. Likewise, we can never discount holiness or sanctification as as something like a suggestion. It's nice if it comes. It's wonderful if it happens. But don't bother with working toward it. Don't bother with seeking it. No, these are real gospel realities. Faith and sanctification truly are a part of the love of God. And after all, think of the language of salvation in Scripture. Who are we? We're new creations. We're born again. We're set free. Now that we know the love of God, we're never going to be the same again, are we? A third lesson that we learn from this first two verses. We learn that this salvation is fully of God. How does this salvation come? Well, Paul reminds us it comes by a divine call. To this he called you through our gospel. Now, he's not referring merely to an exterior call. He's not referring just to the preaching of the word, although it includes that. But I think what he's talking about here might rather be called an inward call. It's that wonderful work of the Spirit where the word of God is preached and the Spirit comes in power. The Spirit accompanies his word and the Spirit convicts us. And don't we know what that's like as believers? To be under the preached word and the word of God cuts us. And it lays us bare. And it exposes us. And we're wounded by it. And then wonderfully and mysteriously in that same preaching that has just wounded us, we finally see the hope of the gospel. We see so clearly and we believe. And then looking back we say it's, it's so simple. Christ Jesus has been crucified for me. The wrath of God has been poured out upon him, though I deserved it. That's the call of the Spirit of God. God has called you. The scales are removed. We see what was once obscured. Even those things that we once hated, now, wonderfully, we love them. That's the call of God. And who can deny that work? Who could ever resist that call of God? I mean, imagine it. Can anybody ever say to the Spirit, no, stop what you're doing. Don't go to my heart. Do not give me life. Do not breathe life into me and make me born again. Can anybody stop God right in this wonderful miracle of bringing conversion and illumination? No, because God proves himself sovereign in this call. Not just over big things. He's not just sovereign over the sun and moon and stars, but he proves in those moments to his, to his children that he is sovereign over our hearts as well. But the Spirit enters in and he implants the word of God. He implants faith. And then what is left from this section? Well, what's left is that God must bring us home. Look at what Paul says. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not a pipe dream. 
This is not a fantastical illusion, you know, just to sort of get us along each day. No. This is a heavenly reality. One day you will experience the glory of God. On that day when the the revelation of God comes and the revelation of the Son of God is there, we will be on the front row seats seeing and knowing Christ who is all glorious. Believers like you and me will have the all-access pass to the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll get to go behind the scenes, behind the curtain to know our Lord Jesus for all eternity. Those doctrines, those five wonderful, beautiful doctrines reveal the love of God, don't they? They are not just for people who quote-unquote want to go deep. You know, if you're into that sort of thing, as people often say. No, these are rich, good, biblical truths that all believers must know and cherish because they powerfully display the love of God. Secondly, I want us to see the day today of God's love, and this is more brief. Paul has given us the framework of the love of God, and now he wants to show us the day today. He issues both a command and a prayer. And really, I think what Paul is doing here is he's just applying his theology. He's taking everything he's just told us about the love of God, and he's applying it. And so we get a command, and that comes in verse 15. Paul writes, So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What is the command? We are to continue in the truth. And he gives several helpful verbs here. He tells us that we must stand firm. In other words, stand strong upon the foundation of Christ. Be planted, be unmoved, be unwavering. And then he gives another verb. He says to hold. Hold on to these things. Grip them. Seize them. Do not let them go. They're yours today and for all eternity. And these describe persistence in the faith. They describe how we go on by and with the love of God. And I want you to notice as well the sort of overall logic that is being presented here. The logic of the gospel. The logic is this. We have been saved, therefore we hold on tight. In other words, our holding on does not ensure Christ's hold on us. It is because Christ holds on to us that we can then hold on to him. Do you see that logic there? Because we are saved, therefore press on in that salvation. And how do we do this? We hold firm to the word of God. That's what Paul emphasizes here. We hold on to the traditions handed down by the apostles. That's the word of God. That is to say, we believe and we know and we apply. And then we do the word of God. In fact, I'll go a step further. We systematically, we rigorously apply the word of God to every circumstance and every area in our life. I might ask you today, do you hold fast to the word of God? I'm not merely asking if you maintain a regular devotional each and every morning. That's a wonderful practice. I love that practice. I am asking you if you're letting the word of God inform your marriage and your family. If you're letting the word of God inform your finances and your budget 
If you're letting the word of God inform what you watch on TV and what you read and what you consume on the internet. If you let the word of God inform your desires and your hopes and every single aspect of your life. That's what it looks like to hold fast to the word of God. We believe it and we do it. We apply it. And I think this is how God's love is going to be manifested in our lives day to day. That is, as you hold on to his word, you will grasp his love in much greater ways. The more you see him, the more you will see how lovely God is. The more you obey God's word, the more you will see how good and how precious his law is. It's not a burden, but it is something that we've been set free to the law of God. And as well, the more you serve him, the more you will see that everything you do is not by your own strength, but it is by his strength. Well, that's the commandment. Finally, the prayer. Paul writes this in verses 16 and 17. He's praying. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so Paul prays for two things here. He prays for two things. And both of these flow, once again, catch it, from our Father who loved us. So these are realities from the love of God, once again. He prays for eternal comfort, and he prays for strength. First, let's focus on the comfort. God is a comforter. He's a consoler. By nature, he is an encourager to his people. And not only that, it is God who has a unique way of encouraging his people and comforting them. He can comfort us beyond that of any human. Think of the most comforting human you know. A spouse, a mother or father. God's comfort goes far beyond that. Why is that? Because he knows what's in our hearts. Because his spirit is working deeply within us. Because God is working to inform and to change our own conscience. Therefore, he can penetrate so deep and comfort so thoroughly and so well. And what does this comfort mean? Well, it means that God will not deal too harshly with you. There may be times when God is challenging you, testing you prodding you. But that testing, that stretching will not break us. Why? Because God is also gentle with us. He's comforting. He will not take us farther than we can go. And this comfort is a treasure for believers. And so often it is exactly what we need in the Christian life. It's one of the only things, if not the only thing, that will heal a broken conscience This assurance and comfort is the only thing that bolsters and repairs our doubting hearts when we struggle to believe. It's this comfort that spurs us on to trust in God day by day. And so I'd ask you, do you need comfort? And you know where to find it. It's here in Christ. Day by day, this love is given to you as God wants to comfort you through his word and through prayer. And the second thing Paul prays for is strength. Look at what he says toward the end. 
and establish them in every good work and word. I think he's actually making a bit of a connection to verse 15 here. Let me see if I can point this out. In 15, we had the command, and Paul commanded that we stand firm. Here now he's promising and he's praying that God would establish you. In other words, you stand firm because it is God who establishes you and will establish you. In other words, go back to that command that you've been given and know this for certain. That you are not to stand by your own strength. But you are to stand by the strength of God. A strength that, once again is given to you each and every day freely in Christ. And what is the purpose of that strength? What is it here to do? Well, Paul tells us, so that you can persist in the word and persist in good works. In other words, it's strength so that you do not fall by the wayside. So you do not fall down as you follow Christ. So that you can stay on course. So that you can hold fast. And brothers and sisters, this is strength that we need each and every day. Every single day, we need that strength to fight our sin, to fight against temptation, to mortify evil desires. Every day, we need that strength to be courageous and bold for Christ. Every single day, we need that strength to bear spiritual fruit in keeping with the word of God. Do you see how much you need God? Not just broadly, not just in your life generally, but how much you need him right now, every day. Every day will require much of us. Every day you will be challenged. Every day you will be fighting a spiritual war. And every single day will bring opportunity to glorify Christ if you have the strength of God to do it. God here promises to give it to us, to help us, to sustain us, and to comfort us. And isn't that how God loves us each and every day? He assures us, I will give you what you need to get through each moment of your life. Let me bring this to a brief close. I want to encourage you this week to remember the love of God. It is a love given to you in Christ. It is a love by which you have been called and chosen, by which you have been justified and are being sanctified and one day will be glorified. This love extends so far backwards, does it not? And this love will carry you home to glory. Every single day, the love of God will bring you closer to that wonderful day of the Lord when we will see and know our Savior and experience the fullness of his love. Let's pray.